Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. In the past few years, Sunday Times Middle East correspondent Louise Callahan has practically seen it all. She was there in Istanbul as a coup tried and failed to overthrow the Turkish government. There were chaotic scenes late on Friday, both in the capital Ankara and Istanbul, as pro-government supporters heeded President Erdogan's call via a video on his smartphone and took to the streets. I went up to Taksim Square and uh, saw the whole thing unfolding. And yeah, so there's like gunfire going off. I was like hiding behind a car next to Burger King. It's amazing to see history just unfolding in front of you. She was in Mosul as the Iraqi army battled with ISIS. Surrender or die. It's a call the Iraqi forces have been making for months. But it's even more pertinent now that they're trying to eradicate Daesh from the last remaining holdouts in Mosul. The first, like, really striking thing that I remember is all of these thousands of people fleeing ISIS-held areas. I mean, there was a front line, but it was very fluid. So people were just running down the road under fire. And in Syria, in 2018, she was the first Western journalist to report on a deadly gas attack ordered by the country's own president, Bashar al-Assad. The sound of a child's cry, alive and being treated. After dozens of Syrians choked to death in a suspected poison gas attack on the rebel-held city of Douma. What we know, and what I know is, from what the survivors personally told me. And I spoke to many survivors, and all of them told me individually, corroborating testimonies, that absolutely point to that it was a chemical attack by the regime of Bashar al-Assad on his own people. Now, after eight years in the region, Louise is packing her bags and moving on. I turned up here in Istanbul and I had downloaded Duolingo on the way to the airport, packed two suitcases, rented a flat. I was 26. She's off to report from the United States. And now I'm 33. It's been eight years. And I'm leaving with a 20-foot container of weird memorabilia that I've picked up here and probably should have got rid of. What has she learned from her time in one of the most volatile regions in the world? You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, battles, beauty salons and lost friends. Eight years in the Middle East. 
My name's Louise Callahan, and I'm the Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times. But not for long, you're moving. I read in the paper the other day that moving house is the number one most stressful thing you can do. I guess it's even more so if you're going from, where, Turkey to... Turkey to New York. I don't know. I'm not finding it that bad. I I guess like one plus side of working in various quite trying situations in various places over the years is that I do find ordinary life, like they're doing normal stuff, really relaxing, doing kind of normal admin things, filling in forms. I thought you were going to say boring. No, I find it quite relaxing. It's like a quite fun thing to procrastinate with. The idea that like moving could be stressful I'm sure it is, but hmm. for me, it's just sort of a like it's sort of things you can regulate, right? You put all your stuff in a box and you fill things into a form and you sort of pack your life up and, and yeah. reflect on everything. I think it's it's been quite a fun process. And packing all your things into a box, you must have stumbled across so many odd knickknacks, memorabilia that you've picked up in, in your travels. Got so much weird stuff. Half of it appears to be illegal in the US. So <laughs> such as what? <laughs> I think it's probably best if I don't go into it I'm planning on moving over. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I was just looking through the the list of things that you're not allowed to bring into the US. And I was, I was initially laughing at it. And then I sort of took <laughs> took a look around my house and thought, oh dear, <laughs> we're in trouble. Can you take us all the way back to when you actually started doing this job? What were the circumstances under which you got going? So I'd been working at the Sunday Times for, I think, three years beforehand as a kind of assistant on the foreign desk. So I would write my own stories occasionally, but mainly kind of photocopy stuff and help the correspondents out with research. And obviously the, the whole time I was just dying to get out of there. Hmm. And then the job of Turkey correspondent came up. And at the time, there wasn't that much going on in Turkey in terms of a British audience. So they sent me over. And then a few months later, the attempted coup happened in Turkey. Turkey's Prime Minister has tonight said that a group within Turkey's military has engaged in what he said appeared to be an attempted coup. Almost 3,000 soldiers, including high-ranking officers, have been arrested in Turkey after an attempted military coup. More than 160 people, many of them civilians, are now confirmed dead. And it was quite late at night and I was at a bar with loads of diplomats and then Someone, actually my colleague at at the FT, she is way more organised than me and looked at her phone and said, look, there's a coup going on. And so I went up to Taksim Square because I was like, okay, well, I guess that'll be a good place as much as any other to be. Mm. And then, yeah, just kind of saw saw the whole thing unfolding. It was like gunfire going off. I was hiding behind a car next to Burger King. I'd never really seen anything like it before. So it was just remarkable to see the whole thing pan out and then I think that's something that all correspondents feel it sounds a bit trite to say but it's such a privilege just like seeing you know however like awful it can be it's amazing to see history just unfolding in front of you yeah and of course you weren't just a witness to history that was happening in Istanbul or even Turkey you being where you were made you I guess perfectly placed to be dispatched to other places as as news happened quite quickly going into full-on conflict. So it was actually just a few months after the coup, I first started working in in a conflict zone. So that was when there was the battle against ISIS, where the Iraqi army and its allies, including the US-led coalition, it was trying to push ISIS out of Mosul. Hmm. I mean, you do these kind of hostile environment training courses, right, before you go into these situations. And that's great. You learn some things, you learn like basic first aid. But obviously, 
when you're in these situations, they're so chaotic and they move so quickly. It's very hard to know what's going on a lot of the time. At the beginning, I wasn't that scared because I was just too stupid to know what was going on. I think I just didn't realise how dangerous it was. I don't believe that, surely, because wasn't this the time where we'd, we'd all been reading about even journalists being kidnapped and, and killed by ISIS in, in Syria? So was that not rattling around in your mind, thinking, grief, that could be me? One thing that's really, I found really useful in this job is my kind of complete lack of imagination. I, 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 <laughs> I tend to just like not catastrophize. And obviously, you know, you, you try and be sensible and you make plans and you don't take big risks and stuff. Yeah. But in war zones, it's just so, so chaotic and so difficult to understand what's happening some of the time. You know, you can plan as well, plan as well as you can. And we talk to our security consultants and, and all of this, but it can still be a bit haphazard. What did you see in Mosul? What we were covering at first was the the Iraqi army moving in. So, I mean, the, the first like really striking thing that I remember is all of these thousands of people fleeing ISIS-held areas. And I mean, there was a front line, but it was very fluid. So people mm. were just like literally leaving ISIS-held areas and running down a road under fire and coming out at what we dubbed the Sunday Times checkpoint, which was that we sort of accidentally went so close that we were sometimes the first people that people would see after escaping from Mosul. Gosh. And I remember it was so stuck in my head seeing this girl, because under ISIS, when women went outside, they had to completely cover their faces, including their eyes. And then they'd been in power for, for years at that point. And I remember seeing this girl come out on the Iraqi army held side and lift up her niqab and her face being in the sun. And she was so, so pale. And I just kind of realized that her face hadn't seen the sun for, for years. Like she'd just been completely covered up for so long. Mm. Yeah, it was remarkable. You could kind of see the, the extremities of humanity, I suppose. And also the ways in which ordinary people and interesting characters make whatever's happening around them try and work for them. I'm thinking particularly some of the people who you've met in zoos. <laughs> yeah. During that time, I think a few months after the, the battle to remove ISIS from the city had started, then I was in eastern Mosul, which was still, I mean, it was being fought over all the time. It was kind of frontline area. I went to this zoo. Someone had told me that there was a zoo in eastern Mosul, and I just thought, okay, well, I have to go and see this. And I turned up, and there was this guy there. He's my age. He's a really, really skinny, sort of disheveled and tired. And he spoke completely fluent English. And he came up to me and we started chatting. I was dressed like a complete idiot. So he was laughing at me to get through the checkpoints. So I dressed in men's clothes and I just looked completely mad. <laughs> but we got along really well. And his name's Hakan Zarari. And he said, do you want to come and see my family? Come and, come and hang out. So me and my photographer, John, and my producer, Sanger, we went to see his family. And they had this amazing house. You can imagine a war zone where every other building is completely flattened. Yeah. Everything's dusty. It's just like glass and wire everywhere. You can hear the explosions. It smells like, like sort of sour cordite and the smell of bodies. And then we went into this garden with Hakam's family and it was like, it was like an Eden. Like it was so beautiful. They'd kept this garden going the whole time under ISIS. And so we became friends. I eventually wrote a book about the zoo that Hakam was one of the main characters in. I was speaking to him a couple of days ago, actually, and we were talking about what life is like in Mosul now. During the battle, it was, it was almost completely 
destroyed. I mean, like large parts of it were almost completely destroyed, for example, like the old city. Hmm. And Hakam's family, they like burned all their books during ISIS. Hakam hid his guitar. Like ISIS would have killed anyone who had sort of banned books in their house. And they hated music and they hated anything like that. And now Hakam is in, in the Mosul City Orchestra. Wow. He's just finished his PhD in chemistry. He's starting law school. He's married. He's had a kid. Just the idea that his kid's growing up in, in a city that's at peace, in a place that when we met not that long ago was almost completely flattened. To me, I don't know, I always think about that when, when people say, oh, well, aren't people always fighting in the Middle East? Or, you know, what's the point? It's just always going to be violent. It's just not true. It's not the case. Like violence and peace, it kind of ebbs and flows. It, it changes all the time. Yes. But continuing that ebb and flow, before you get to the story of, of how Hakam managed to live a better life for himself, you had more grim reporting to do, particularly in Syria, Everyone, I'm sure, can remember the the reporting and the TV pictures of the of the gas attack that Bashar al-Assad inflicted on on his people. What was your vantage point for all of that? A window into what life is like in the rebel-held enclave of Douma. Children, mothers, fathers struggle for oxygen after a suspected chemical attack. Reporters cannot get into the town, civilians cannot get out. So internet videos are the only evidence of their suffering. This was the, the Duma attacks in, in 2018, where Assad gassed his own people in a suburb of Damascus. And at the time, I think I was in Iraq, which was completely the wrong place to be, on a different story. And the pictures just started coming out. And I mean, me and my editor just thought, you know, we have, okay, I've got to go, got to go and try and find out what's really happening. So I went over the border, started speaking to people. I didn't go to the place where the attack had happened. I went to the area where the people had been displaced to because I wanted to try and gather as much testimony as I could from the people who'd actually been there. And I just remember there was this woman, because there had been a chlorine gas attack, right? That was the theory. We were still in the process of, of proving that. And I said, like, did you bring anything with you when you left your home? Can you tell me about the attack? And she said, yeah, we, we've got our clothes that we wore that, wore that night. They're outside the tent. And I was like, why are they outside the tent? And she was like, well, because they stink of chlorine. And I went and I smelt them and they just smelt like a swimming pool. Mm. And that intensity of, of knowing that that was because of the gas that had been, the gas that had been released or that knowing what that family had been through, it was just horrifying. I then sort of went back to Turkey, wrote the story Sometimes with foreign reporting, it can feel like really expensive and dangerous and stupid and you go all the way there. What's the point? You could just call someone. That's the attitude in, in some places and some media organizations. But the Sunday Times is fantastic and then it sends you there, it sends their correspondence there on the ground. So you can see things like that. And I think having that kind of, yeah, something as simple as a smell of chlorine can really, I don't know, bring to life situations like that for, for readers. And that must affect you. I mean, by that point, that would have been, is it fair to say that would have been the sort of biggest story you will have covered up to that point? And clearly one full of, of grim details and, and stories. I mean, does that, does that sit uneasily with you and have an effect on then how you do things going forward? I think that one really great thing about being a foreign correspondent working in 
war zones compared to other jobs that take you to war zones is that for us, there's quite, there's a very obvious and clear outlet. So I go there, I see stuff, I write it down, I send it into the ether, but I know that people read it. And that's to me, like really, it's really important. And it's a great feeling knowing that readers in the UK know what's happening. I speak to a lot of people who work in these situations, especially, I don't know, soldiers or could be anyone really. And then they, and they feel like they see all this stuff and they don't really do anything with it. You know, it's, it just kind of sits inside them. Whereas when I'm writing a story, I kind of process what it is that I've seen and I put it in some kind of order and then send it off. And I know that I can say that, that people read it, that people know what's happening. Coming up, a takeaway delivery on the front line of a battle. And where is the best place to go to get the feel of a new country? We'll get more from Louise in a moment. This weekend, Time subscribers can get the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It is our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts. Just for Time subscribers, you'll get it on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out how. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Louise, you've been taking us through your many fascinating years in the Middle East, just as you're about to leave to go to New York and continue reporting from there. You were explaining a little bit earlier on about how you have an outlet for what you do. So unlike many people who end up in war zones or or difficult situations who can't express what they've seen, what they've felt, at least you've got an outlet. But I wonder when you sort of close the chapter on this Middle East part of your career for now, who are the, the people who you remember living dead who sort of stick with you it doesn't feel like i'll be leaving but at the same time there's so many people here who i'm gonna always be in touch with i guess that's the first thing it feels like Mm. i'm never going to be done with this place but who am i going to remember i mean there's my my friend the 
hilarious, brave, brilliant James LeMessurier, who founded an organization called the White Helmets, who died by suicide a few years ago. He is an amazing, amazing guy, an incredible leader, hysterical, huge Katy Perry fan. One thing in this job is that you end up with a kind of roll call of people that you've lost. It's just an inevitable part of life, I guess. But you try and remember them. Like my friend Ashad Fakhri, who was hilarious. He threw the best parties in Baghdad. There were parties in Baghdad <laughs> because of him. It was so fun. What makes a good party in Baghdad? Well, A, that it exists. Yeah. No, but he used to throw these parties by the river and... I mean, he's just kind of brave and ridiculous person. I mean, who does that? <laughs> you know? And Ajahn was just very accepting of everyone. Women, gay guys, like anyone, like anyone coming to his parties was welcome. Mm. And someone didn't like that. And then so he was kidnapped, I think probably by the militias. And he's gone. We didn't see him again. Gosh. A difficult question, but what's the sort of, what's the most striking bit of resilience that you've seen from somebody? Like just so incongruous that something, that what is happening around them and how they're able to deal with it. I mean, Iraqis are just amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I remember being right next to a front line, as in there was like active fighting going on, mm. like mortars landing close by. And there was just this guy, like a teenager, running through the rubble with a platter of kebab. <laughs> He had a restaurant and someone had ordered food and he was delivering it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, are you okay? And he was like, I'm fine. Do you want a kebab? <laughs> Incredibly, Louise, for somebody who's been to Mosul and parts of Yemen and all the rest of it, you've never stepped foot in the US. How did that happen? Well, yeah, I mean... Did they not I, pay you enough? <laughs> yeah, that, that's why. Make yeah. sure you tell them. When did Trump come into power? 2016. Before mm. that, I was just starting out as a reporter. I didn't have the cash to go to the US. <laughs> and then yeah. by the time I got a staff job, then, then Trump was in power with the Muslim ban. So that meant that if you'd gone to any number of like Muslim countries, the main ones where I worked, actually, then it was more complicated to get a visa to go to the US. So yeah. I just kind of never did. And I always thought I'd get around to it one day. Mm. And I did. Now I'm going there to work as a correspondent. What are you most interested in learning? I mean, is there a bit of it that you're thinking, that you're particularly curious about? Well, in all the years that I've been working here, then you kind of realise that a lot of the decisions which are affecting the region are being made in the US. I mean, the US elections, the results of them, they don't just affect people in the US, right? They affect people over the world. So I really want to to go and see where it's all coming from, to go and try and get under the skin of this incredible, amazing place, which kind of dictates so much of what it is that happens around the world and how, how our reality is shaped. I always found it a really weird dynamic that you speak to US officials and you write stories about US officials say, or mm. you know, so-and-so in Washington thinks that. And you, you'll put it in the story and then you kind of think, well, like, what are you basing that on? And I think there is generally a problem and this is not just in the US I think this happens in many countries where there's a kind of group think within the foreign policy establishment and whenever I've gone to a country that I've reported from I've always been surprised I've always been so surprised by the way that people see things and it's really difficult to capture from outside I think that's the value of 
on the ground reporting is that you see things from the perspective of the people that it affects. And that can be a real issue when foreign policy decisions are being made really far away by people who haven't spent time in a place. Mm. What are the best tips that you've accumulated over your years? Well, I would say, number one, if you're being shelled, do not stand there and look around and try and figure out where it's coming from. Run away or Mm. lie down or do something. What else? My producer, Vika, in Ukraine, taught me a very, very important advice that I haven't had occasion to use yet. But if I do need it, I will be really happy to have it, which is that if you're in a bar fight, you should pick up a chair, hold it in front of you and go and stand in the corner, which honestly just sounds like really solid advice. Yeah. So you can all have that for free. If you're in an area that doesn't have electricity and the generators aren't working, then refrigerators will also not be working. So do not eat anything that requires refrigeration. I think we've all learned that the hard way. Is there a type of person you always go to when you're in a new place? One thing that I do sometimes when I turn up in a new country or in a new area where I don't know anyone is I go to beauty salons. <laughs> it's great because everyone sits there gossiping and everyone's so relaxed. And obviously, like I mean, you know this, right? Like in any country, a hairdresser is always the person who's most clued in on yeah. all the gossip. <laughs> yeah. So I'll go there, I'll get I'll get a manicure or something, which may sound like it's not the best use of my working time, but I'm fully confident that it is. You get a really good sense of gossip, what people are talking about, what's important to people, just from sitting and sort of listening to people chatting in a beauty salon or, or talking to people yourself. It's a good place to start. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, former Middle East, now current US correspondent for The Sunday Times, Louise Callahan. Not one to take a break after her transatlantic move, Louise is already in the US, and if you're a subscriber, you can read her first dispatch from New Hampshire ahead of the Republican primary there tonight. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producers were James Shield and Will Rowe. And sound design was by Maula Seto. If you want, leave us a review. It'll help other people searching through their podcasts find us. And if you want to email us, we're on storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Goodbye. <laughs>